Wounded but not broken with host Patrick Scroggins. As a U.S. Army attack helicopter pilot deployed in Iraq, Patrick faced a devastating crash, which resulted in him dying, losing a leg, and a slew of broken bones. Patrick's story of rehabilitation has helped others to overcome their own obstacles. Each week, Patrick recounts stories of inspiration and interviews guests who have overcome remarkable obstacles. This is Wounded But Not Broken with your host, Patrick Scroggins. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wounded But Not Broken, another Monday night. Man, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. Uh, You know, all my shows... Uh, to date have, you know, been about inspiration and courage and heroism and, and man, I, you know, this, what's going on in Ukraine right now, I, I think that, that aligns perfectly. I mean, you've got some people that are that are standing up and they're fighting for themselves and they're fighting for everything and they're digging down deep and, and overcoming a lot. So let's just keep all of them in our prayers and, and you know, hopefully uh, hopefully they come out on the, on the positive side of this in, in one form or another. Um, that being said, Talking about uh, courage and inspiration, uh, we're going to finish up with Joe Hahn. He's online here tonight. Joe, hey Patrick, thanks for having me back. Yeah, man. So we're going to get on because I know there's a lot to cover. So you know, we were up to your first deployment uh, when we kind of got sidetracked and then we went back to your childhood. So we're at your first deployment. So you know, on that first deployment, you know, you were, at, you know, that was your first uh, deployment as a as a SEAL. And so let's just walk through that and, and some of the some of the things that you did on that deployment. Yeah, no, uh, October, 2006. So I had my, uh, trident for about a year and, uh, went through the whole workup process with, uh, Silking five. Um, and as a brand new guy, I had the opportunity to deploy with a lot of really good operators. <clears throat> um, we went to Havania, which was not too far away from Fallujah, but we flew in and man, I had this, crazy notion just how I built it up in my head and watching the invasion and stuff on TV that as soon as I landed I felt like I was going to start taking incoming fire for some reason it was entertaining but we landed in uh, Al Assad and convoyed over this bridge uh, and went to our fob in Habania um, yeah uh, like seven months uh, so we had the Christmas deployment and um it was pretty good. You know, halfway through that deployment, I actually got relocated with a team up north to stand up a, a FOB up in Arawa uh, and got to meet some Silking 4 guys. Um, that's when I actually I met a, a a gentleman you guys may have heard of, Mr. Ed Byers. He was on his second platoon about the screen for the command, and he was one of the guys that actually inspired me to uh, screen for it after my second deployment, uh, talking to him and a couple of other guys that uh, were on uh, the Team 4 I stuck up north with, and uh, yeah, no, it was it was I want to say uneventful, you know, because it is Iraq, and it was uh, a decent you know, wartime deployment. So um, we didn't really get any uh, serious firefights that time, but um, I mean, your basic incoming, and uh, especially when we moved out in north, we basically were hanging out in tents with a bunch of Marines, and we started building the Hesco walls and whatnot. Uh, it, was, it was a good time, you know. I uh, enjoyed being out with there with the guys and uh, got to represent my country in the best way. Yeah, so can you remember, uh, you know, like your first uh, tick on that or, two, you know, when you when you got hit the first time or when the first time firefighter? So that first deployment, 
we didn't actually get in too many uh, actually direct uh, kicks or troops in contact. Um, most of the stuff we did uh, was pretty uneventful. Uh, we, we didn't uh, exchange a lot of gunfire, per se. Um, and like I said, halfway through the deployment, I went up there to stand uh, stand up a help stand up a base with some Marines, and a lot of our stuff was uh, reconnaissance based and collection when we can. But um, yeah, I mean, it was like I said, 2006. It was on that teetering edge where they were starting to get smart and knowing the rules of engagement. They would, you know, take pot shots at us and stuff, and then they'd run inside or something or drop off their AKs, and if we hit the building, they basically would either, A, come out with their hands up, or B, just kind of play stupid. Um, we'd arrest them and turn over to the Iraqis for that first deployment. Um, yeah, I don't recall too many exciting uh, gunfights on that very first deployment, okay. which, which, so, which happens from time to time. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it's... Um, especially at that point, you know, it was kind of more strategic and more, uh, you know, um, I guess friendly, trying to be friendly oriented, you know, we were peacekeepers at that point, just trying to collect the bad guys. But, um, so you did a seven month deployment on that and then you exfilled and then how long before you went again? I know you're always, the your guys' out tempo is pretty, pretty high. Yeah. So. We would, uh, like I said, we always had the Christmas deployment, so it was 2006, 2007, uh, about April, May, we came back <coughs> and did another full workup, um, and that's when I put my initial package in to go to Green Team for development group, but uh, our second deployment was uh, October 2008 through about March, April 2009. Um, that one, we actually had some pretty good little firefights in uh, just because where we're at. We were actually in Fallujah, and then we relocated right down the street to Camp Baharia, they called it. But uh, I remember shutting that Fallujah base down, and, and we were turning turning some bases over and some stuff over to the Iraqis about that time, but we were still, I don't know, it was just at that, that point it was a little more exciting than the first one. Yeah, and so you 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 you'd said you put your initial uh, packet into Green Team or Dev Group, which a lot of people uh, may not know. Dev Group being uh, SEAL Team Six, correct? So, uh, uh, like I said, that first deployment is where I met a lot of good guys, um, and they're like, "Hey, it, the only way to become the top of your career path and kind of be with the best operators known to man, um, this is the command you want to be at." Uh, with uh, things kind of slowing down and, and the shift they had with uh, the regular SEAL teams to, uh, like you said, most of the regular special forces um, and SEAL teams and stuff started shifting to an advise and assist type deal because they're trying to pull away from uh, the American face behind the war, you know? Right. So, that, whole, that, whole direct, that whole direct action thing where you're trying to back up and trying to put it more on them to, you know, to do their thing. Yeah, um, but then... Uh, there was only basically, besides the Army counterparts, uh, CAG, um, the development group was the only one that was actually still doing some some high-profile missions and actually doing what, you know, Navy SEALs and team guys were trained and, and bred to do. Um, that was a big thing. I remember going, when I was going through training was, hey, the chances of you getting in a firefight are 100%, and if you're not prepared to take the 
fight to the enemy, then you're in the wrong line of work. Like we're not sitting here. This is a part of the Navy where you can sit on a ship and uh, pick your nose for six months. So you're going to be on the ground um, face-to-face with guys that want to kill you. Um, and so at the time, the development group was the ones that had all the – still had some, some high-profile missions still going on, um, you know, basic stuff. So, yeah, no, uh, green team, uh, I went in 2009 – um, which was the selection and basically selection and training for that command. Um, that was a, a, a lengthy, lengthy seven-month process. It was, man, it was like, I, I don't want to compare it to BUDS because it was, it was way more difficult and different than BUDS. Um, usually BUDS, you know, it's a six-month process, and it was, um, if you're a, a big, dumb caveman that uh, could push through mental anguish and pain and, and know that, hey, you know, I'm going to make it through no matter what, and I'm not going to quit. Um, you know, basically what Bud is, but green team selection, you had to, they wanted intelligent guys uh, working with them, thinking, thinking operators that could actually dissect a problem at a higher level compared to anybody uh, in the military community. Uh, so not to get into too much about it because uh, the selection and training process is uh, still kind of uh, – classified a little bit, but um, uh, they tested not only your physical acuity, but your mental acuity, how to make decisions um, on the ground, uh, each as an individual. So um, they, they were looking for not just guys that would follow um, orders and just kind of do what the deal. They wanted somebody that could actually accomplish a mission, um, and everybody was a leader at that command. It was, uh, man, just a, it was an honor just to kind of be even – thought of as a prospect to, to make it uh, to there, but making it through the selection training and being selected for the uh, the unit I was with uh, was, was pretty phenomenal. Like, it's you know, definitely some of the best times that I had in the military and in my life, for sure. Right. I mean, I would assume it's just like any of the other uh, top-tier units or Tier 1 units. I mean, you're, you've already proved yourself that you can put up with the, the amount of pain and, and the drive. You're not going to quit, so it's more... Um, it's more transformed into being a professional and, you know, like you said, intelligence and, and being able to adapt and, and make the right decision. Yep. Uh, like uh, you hear a lot about the history and the legacy of the command while you're going through selection. Um, back to uh, Richard Marcinko, his vision of it was, uh, like I said, the, the counter counterpart to uh, uh, CAG, so Army's, the Army's Tier 1 unit. <clears throat> But he wanted to make it uh, comparable and better. So, uh, in the grand scheme of things, people think there's some type of uh, tension between us and the army. But we we work together quite often. But it's it's you know it's it's the two best best shows out there, uh, ready to do stuff. And um, there's always a sense of competition. But um, definitely the uh, the selection. They they want to make sure that hey, your mission's number one asset. Um, you are a tier one asset, and uh, I definitely want to make sure that there's not a, not a, not a chance in hell that that you'll be someone that can become a liability um, on the battlefield and overseas. Because right. that, that unit definitely has a has a quick um, turnaround time, and it's one of those things where if anything in the world, even uh, any, anybody in the world, as far as American citizens go. 
uh, need your help, that's definitely the unit they usually call us or uh, the Army counterpart. And yeah, no, it was, yeah. uh, it was high paced, high tempoed, and uh, highly rewarding. Right, and yeah, and I know I know you you have done work together. You know the two tier one units, and and you know there is some kind of conflict because you all operate different. I mean, just different missions, really. I mean, you, you just have different uh, SOPs, and and uh, you know, so sometimes you know when you have that many Type A personalities together, it's very hard to uh, be a cohesive unit. Um, so I think they, for the most part, they try to kind of separate that, right? Or you know, they try to integrate it a little bit, but now I think they. They kind of separate it a little bit, don't they? Uh, it, it depends. Uh, like I said, I don't want to touch too much into um, details on an eater unit, but uh, when I was going through selection in, in 2009, uh, the focus for our command was Afghanistan, and uh, the Army's uh, counterpart was Iraq, and and it was, it was searching for uh, top targets uh, in the world. So at the time, obviously, uh, 2009, we were still hunting uh, Bin Laden, and then the guys in Iraq, it was like still probably what they caught. Uh, they caught Saddam in 2004. Yep, because that was 2003, 2004. I was going through boot camp and I saw that, um, and that was that was the CAD guys, and so that was their deal. And they're just basically going down that list of. Basically, I don't know if you saw those the, the playing cards that they had for the targets, and they oh, were yeah. they're basically eliminating all the guys or taking taking off the battlefield those uh, those top lieutenants, and then trying to prevent uh, any further insurgencies in Iraq. But they were um, doing some other stuff that it's, it's tough because I'd love to talk about it, but at the same time, I don't want to. No, I mean it's you know it, everybody. I think everybody understands, or you should. I mean, there's there's certain things that uh, that ha- that goes on that we don't need to know, and frankly, we shouldn't know. And and the only thing we should know is that there are men that there are men and women that at night you can go to sleep that are that have your best interest at heart, but are doing the 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 stuff that needs to get done. And that's all we need to know. <laughs> um, yeah. No. But. Yeah. No. Like when they say that America has um, some of the best military units in the world. Um, it's when I was at the command and, and talking to other military units from different countries, it was definitely obvious that I've got a lot of different units looked up to each command just because of our reach pretty much. Like if you're an American citizen and you uh, were taken by terrorists, no matter where you're at on the globe, um, you'll have men with green faces coming to, coming to either pull you out or return uh, return you to your family in one way, shape, or form. Because obviously, sometimes we can't predict the willingness of terrorists or insurgents. But sometimes, if we can find you and you're still alive, then, then there's a good chance that we're coming. They're going to come and bring you home. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, uh, that being said, we're going to take our first break here. We'll be uh, back in just a minute. Word from our sponsors, and we'll pick up where we left off. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. 
Look at family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. So, um, Joe, we uh, we left off with you. So you got through uh, Green Team and you went to you went to the, the dev group, right? So can we skip on to your first deployment there? Uh, well, actually, we'll, we'll talk about my first injury was uh, prior to my first deployment. So my major first major injury. So um I make it through uh, selection and training and get accepted to uh, uh, one of the most awesome units I've ever been a part of. Like the guys I got to work with were, and I, it's, it's phenomenal. And I definitely, it, it felt unreal. Like it was one of the things I had to pitch myself to be surrounded by the type of guys I was with. Um, but I finished the, uh, finished my selection, got to my unit in October, 2009. Um, and those guys were just getting off deployment. Um, the, their deployment cycle is a little different. Uh, I'm not going to get into it too much, but it's, it's definitely more high pace. Those guys, at the time back then, were uh, deploying once, sometimes twice a year. Um, for uh, I'm not going can't really talk about how long and whatnot, but it was it was very high high pace. So it was one of those things that hit the ground running um, with uh, the work up for the next uh, for the next deployment, pretty much. Uh, so. My second trip with a squadron, still a still a brand new guy, um, and it was a, a jump trip. 
Um, so we, we went and uh, did jumping all week. It was, a, it was actually a, a really good week. Um, nice and nice weather where we were jumping at, and uh, made it to Friday. And you know everybody's excited because we were supposed to kind of get off on the at noon and, and kind of go eat some dinner and have a few beers and just kind of bond and, and you know check off the first week of skydiving. Um, and it's one of those things everybody's all excited, like, oh man, let's get one more jump in, one more jump in. Um, but as the day kind of progressed, the winds were shifting in altitude, and um, we weren't really tracking that. So we we talked about our dive plan, our jump plan. Okay, this is the holding area we're going to get at when we get at. So we get here, we'll have a holding area, and we'll start our pattern at this end. <clears throat> so we go up to go up to altitude. It's it's uh, free fall skydiving. So this is all. Uh, not a static line. This is all uh, operator-controlled kind of deal. So, so we jump out. Uh, usually one of the – I'm a bigger guy. I was like 225 at the time, pretty solid, decent-sized dude. So I usually would get out before one of the first couple guys because I fall faster. I usually want the lighter guys at the end and the heavier guys in front because the last thing you want to do is have a heavy guy fall through a light guy that's still kind of floating down. So we jumped to pretty standard – um, besides parachutes. So I jump out and uh, make my way to the holding area, and the winds at about three, 4,000 feet are howling. So they're, like, pushing me away from the drop zone. Uh, <clears throat> at this point in my career, I probably have and 10 to 15 actual free fall jumps um, and 10 static line jumps because usually going through BUDS and SQT, you get your 10 and you get qualified as a parachutist. Um, and at this point, uh, yeah, I was like 15 actual jumps. Um, and I was like panicking because where we were jumping at, the, the drop zone's pretty clear and it's pretty big, but it's surrounded by trees everywhere. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to end up landing in all these trees. So I'm facing towards drop zone trying to work my uh, parachute and it's not working and I see this body of water to my left <clears throat> so uh, I start working my way towards that body of water because I'm thinking like man I'll, I'm going to hopefully just land in some water that way I'm not smacking in some trees I'll be wet but at least I'll be okay uh, so I start making way towards that body of water and the wind's still kind of doing some shit and stuff and as I'm getting closer to the ground uh this little body of water is right next to a road and I start seeing power lines and I'm looking at it and I was like, man, if I'm going to hit that body of water, I'm probably going to hit those power lines because uh, they're right in my, basically my, my final approach to the little body of water that I'm going to try to land in. So I'm, my heart's racing, my eyes are wide and I'm just panicking, but I'm, I'm trying to stick with my landing pattern <clears throat> And I'm working my way trying to avoid these power lines, and I kind of don't have a choice but to kind of land where there's some trees are at. So these trees are about 60, 60 65 feet tall. They're pretty tall. Um, so I, I start going through this tree, and of course, I kind of remember all the skydiving training that we had. They're like, hey, and if you go through some trees, you'll probably get stuck because there's all kinds of lines and stuff going to your parachute. Um, if, if you get stuck in a tree, you know, try not to move too much or, or try to get out of your deal because depending on the size of the tree, if you fall, you'll hurt yourself. But that was not the case for me. When I hit that tree, 
it ended up uh, collapsing my parachute and basically taking all my lines and twisting them. So instead of getting stuck in the tree, I started falling faster. Um, but put my feet and knees together like uh, Army Airborne taught me many moons before that and prepared to impact the ground, which happened to be right next to that road. And when I hit that road, uh, I immediately shattered my left leg. And I hit the ground so hard that it broke my back and I actually shit myself. Um, and, man, I was like my second trip into the squadron, and I'm sitting here with a shattered leg. I, I didn't really know how broken it was at the time, but I knew it was broken pretty bad because it hurt like hell. And my back was feeling funny. Um, and I was like, crap. I was super nervous and I'm looking at it and it wasn't uh it wasn't a compound fracture. So there's no bone sticking out. Uh, so I just thought like, Oh, maybe it's just a simple fracture um, until I moved it. And it felt like, it felt like if you put a, a, a glass face into a paper bag and you shattered the whole thing, like throwing all yeah. these pieces by all my, <laughs> bo- you probably know what I'm talking about, but and all the bones above my ankle, I say all my tibia and my fibia, uh, it was, shattered like there was when i got to the hospital um they, they said it was like like i said somebody took a glass face and broke it uh but at the time i didn't know what it was i, I just, it didn't feel right when i moved it it was just kind of crinkling and i was like oh man this is bad uh the corpsman ran up <clears throat> was like oh are you okay and i was like no i i I'm pretty sure i broke my leg um this dude he grabs my foot uh and pulls off my shoe to look at my leg back wasn't broken at the time, I probably would have decked him because he pulled it off. He didn't cut <laughs> off the shoe like you do. He should have. He should have either A, left alone, or B, got his scissors and cut off my shoe. He pulled it like you would pull off your kid's shoe or your boot at the end of the day. Yeah. And like my, my, my bones, there was there was just complete trash. And I just started screaming. And I was trying to move, but I couldn't really move very much. Oh, and this guy's like, oh, his, eyes, his face got all white. And he's like, oh, this is bad. Um, so they ended up Packing me into an airplane that night, uh, that's one of the perks that being at this unit was uh, if guys are hurt, they, there's it's immediately getting you back to the Navy doctors. Um, I flew back to Portsmouth um, that day, uh, and that flight was very uncomfortable because every little bump, like they put a splint on it and everything, but, man, just all those pieces of bone shifting around just with altitude and whatnot. Uh, I just remember it being the most uncomfortable thing I ever had to fit in all lollipops I was sucking on. Just going, man, this this is incontrollably painful. Um, I get to uh, Portsmouth Naval Hospital. Um, they're pulling me out of the back of the uh, ambulance that met us at the uh, terminal on the, on the Oceana side. Um, and this, uh, God bless his heart, this young corpsman, uh, it must have been pretty pretty new to the Portsmouth area, or I don't know, but he went to grab my gurney to, to get me out of this deal, and he didn't lock it. So as soon as he tries to set me on the ground, the thing collapses, and I just fall off this gurney onto the pavement again. And I'm just like, man, I don't have any good luck today. Like, pavement is, is my mortal enemy right now. And they roll me into the doctor. Um, they're like, yeah, you've completely shattered both your tibia and your fibia above your ankle. Um, we're going to do our best to put it back together, uh, but you may not walk again, and this may be the end of your career. And, uh, man, that was the the lowest I ever felt ever in my life. Like, even when I got hurt in bugs, I was 
you know, still able to move and whatnot. But this, I was like, man, I, I just made it through selection, and this unit just uh, accepted me into its ranks. I'm on my, my second trip of my workup, and I completely destroyed my leg, and uh, my, my career's pretty much over. Yeah, that's a uh, shitty feeling. I, I know the feeling very well. Um, you, uh, yeah, so so what did you do from there? I mean, obviously, you're, you and I are built a lot like, I mean, when somebody tells you you can't do something, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah, annoying. At, yeah, at, at first, I was uh, kind of depressed because I was in a Portsmouth hospital all by myself um, and went through all the surgeries. I spent, yeah, I was, you probably spent longer than I did, but I spent six weeks in that hospital laying in that bed. They would do a surgery. They'd have to wait for my leg to stop swelling. And then they go and do another surgery. And uh, they ended up putting about three or four plates in that leg and about 20 screws um, to kind of piece it together. Uh, <clears throat> luckily, I had a, a, a phenomenal doctor. Uh, his name was uh, Dr. Anderson. Great, great doc. Uh, for Navy doc, anyways, you know, it's funny to have a joke. What do you call uh, a doctor that graduates at the bottom of his class? Uh, a Navy doctor. <laughs> but, uh, but this guy, no, nah, this guy was great. Um, he put me back together, uh, sent me on my way, and I went back and started rehab. The, the rehab personnel at this unit, uh, obviously, just like everything else, was top notch. They went and sought out the best, they were civilians, the best rehab physical therapist, um, just just phenomenal guys. All these guys had background with working with sports teams, like professional sports teams or college teams. Um, uh, these guys were epic. Yeah, and so, so I'm, I'm assuming you get back there with this, you know, you're probably a little little hesitant. You didn't know what was going to happen, but, you you know, you just you try to – uh, you know, try to jump in with with all, you know, with everything you had, with all your heart. I mean, you'd fought your ass to get there, and you're at the pinnacle. You weren't, yeah. you know, you weren't it, ready to uh, go. Yep. No, I I definitely was. It, it took me, like I said, and when I got out of the hospitals, when I got out of my mental funk, um, as far as, um, wait a second, you know, I'm still here. I still got orders here. Um, I'm, I'm not going to give up until the Navy cuts me orders out of here. Um, so, my only mission in life. Because they told me it was probably going to be like a year and a half, two years to even get uh, recovered enough to just kind of walk around again. Um, but you know, the doc was still like that. That's a, that's a really bad injury. Like you, you've destroyed everything uh, above your ankle and did some really good damage to the ankle joint. <clears throat> but uh, it was like I was, I was like, hey, I still got one leg. And uh, there was a a guy there who got shot in the leg. Um, one of the first deployments that uh, the unit had overseas in Afghanistan got in turbo um, and same thing. And he was having issues with that. He ended up getting, he cutting his leg off, but that was one of my things. I was like, Hey, if I got to cut my leg off, that's fine. As long as I can stay at this unit. So, yeah. so they Man. said a year and a half, but it ended up taking probably eight months. Cause I had eight months until deployment. And so I was like, you know what? I got to, I got to get this healed up enough so I can at least walk. Um, and then I got to work my way, start working with my unit again. And, and that's what I did. I just kind of pretended like I didn't hear the doc say that I was never going to walk again to, um, I, I'm going to make those decisions for me when that time comes. 
And now with the phenomenal physical therapist and uh, every day that was, that became my new job. You know, I'd go in every day and literally would work on strength, flexibility on all my good limbs. And then when they started saying I could put weight on that thing, um, it's, it was a grueling, grueling process. It was, it was like another mini bud again, but with a broke leg trying to forcefully get through that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, and, you know, I, I think, I think with the attitudes that uh, that you know we have, I mean, that's just the way you approach it. It's just a, it's just another obstacle you got to overcome. Uh, but that being said, we're going to take another commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to you know keep going with this with this story. We'll be right back. You're listening to Wounded but Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847 847- 754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985 serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nifb.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network, brings you Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. All right, everyone, back on here with Joe, um, talking about him overcoming, uh, you know, his first injury. Uh, it was a pretty bad one with his uh, leg being shattered. And so, Joe, let, let's pick up on that uh, recovery process. 
Yeah. Um, like I said, that, that became my uh, my main mission in life. Um, that was the only goal. Uh, it was it was tough, but it was one of those things that if you weren't involved or included in my recovery process and need to get back to my unit, um, I, I I didn't make time for you, uh, which uh, kind of wrecked a little bit on my family life. But that's uh, was where I was at because uh, the unit I was at, uh, I held all those guys in in high respect and high regard, and I wasn't going to let a simple injury prevent me from being a um, guy on the on the battlefield and helping them out. Like I was, they probably didn't need me in the, in the grand scheme of things, but I had that mentality where if if I didn't make it onto that appointment, I failed all those guys that, uh, that I worked with. And like I said before, failure wasn't an option in my book. Um, so I took that year and a half. Uh, potential recovery process and shortened it to eight months because all I had was eight months before my unit was going to deploy. Um, yeah, no, uh, as soon as I started walking, uh, it was actually, it took me about three, four months after my last surgery just because, you know, six weeks for a bone to heal if it's like fractured, but this thing was you know, pretty much mangled and um, the doc did a pretty good job piecing it back together and, and whatever pieces uh didn't really fit together. It kind of molded around the plates and screws that I had to the point where, you know, they're, they're still part of me today. Um, if they took it out, my, my bone would be Swiss cheese and it'd be a, a nightmare. So, uh, no, I ended up making that deployment, which, uh, happened to be uh, a Christmas deployment again. So October, 2009, um, able to make it with my unit and we deployed to Afghanistan. Yeah, and so I mean, you know, I uh, to to go over that. I mean, you know, a strong mind, determination, goals, the mindset, stubbornness, all that factors in uh, when you get hurt like that. And you're, and you know, the the human body and the human mind are such an amazing tool if you know how to tap into it and how to use it. And obviously, you you do. And you know, and I I feel like I feel like you know, in, in the civilian population, that's it's starting to uh, lack. I mean, especially with this newer generation, um, you know, I just don't feel like they oh, a lot have that that kind of drive um, to succeed. Well, it's it's tough because people don't understand the the capability of the human body. Like I've seen, and especially overseas, I've seen injuries. Um, and I mean, you've witnessed it. And you're, you're part of it. One of those guys that injuries you would think uh, should kill a man. Um, and people just kind of like, oh, I, I, I wouldn't have been able to do anything after that. And it's kind of how the do- that's how the doctors usually uh, diagnose you is on the average person. So like, hey, the average person after an injury like this um, will mentally kind of give up and just, hey, I'm I'm broken, and that becomes their new reality instead of going <clears throat> like a very small percentage of people. I mean, there's few people out in the civilian world where they have a disability or something. They're like, you know what, this isn't. This isn't uh, going to define who I am. This is going to be a part of me and and make me a better person. Um, and that's kind of you know what I did. I mean, was I in pain every day? Uh, absolutely. Like it, it was definitely one of those things that I was nervous um, going back with my unit. But at the same time, I talked to all my head shed. I talked to the rehab guys, and I did all the the physical testing again. They're like, hey, 
it wasn't just like, oh, let's see if you can walk. All right, cool, you're good. And like, this is a, a tier one unit. I had to perform um, at, at a tier one level. So what was my run time in green team? Okay, you have to at least match that and, and pass the standards for uh, the PT test. All right, cool. Now you need to be able to run around with body armor and stuff all day, um, doing house runs or, or mission profiles and stuff, and and not fall out or become a liability. So it, all this stuff, my unit uh, and my chiefs and uh, team leaders uh, put me through, and it was it sucked. You know, it was one of those things, but it was it it, it tested me again, pretty much. Like I said, it was I had to go through a mini selection again to make sure that I was good to go to deploy before I went. It wasn't just one of those things where they're like, oh, it's Joe. You know, he just made it through selection. He's good. No, it, when you get hurt, uh, especially at that command, there's a lot of guys that would be like. That can swallow a lot of pain, um, but in the, the day they want to make sure that you're physically capable. Um, and yeah, no, like it, it was, uh, it was excruciating. Uh, it definitely sucked, but it was one of those things that's like I, I can't let my men, my uh, my men, they were or my brothers, can't let my brothers down. Um, and those guys depended on me um, in some way, shape, or form. So I had to be able to show up and perform at their level. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, that just goes back to that old saying, you're only as strong as your weakest link and, and you understanding, you know, you understanding that knowing that you were going to have to put yourself through that again to prove yourself because every, that, every guy, that guy on your right and left is, is depending on you and they can't, they don't, you don't have time or you don't have, you know, they don't want to be questioning anything that you're doing and you don't have, you know, you just, you got to be focused on, on your tasks. Right. So, yeah, I and mean, that's, and you, you knowing that and being being in that unit, I mean, it was just it's probably just more of a challenge for you, and just more of a reason for you to uh, overcome it. Yeah. But, but so, how did that deployment go with you with you being hurt? I mean, uh, well, it, it, man, it, it, it felt it it really didn't hurt as much in country as it did back home. So before I deployed, getting ready, um, it, it hurt like hell. But once you know, I got the orders, and they said it was good to go. Uh, I don't know if it's just that constant dump of adrenaline being in the, what we call being in the red, uh, but after getting overseas and just operating night after night, <clears throat> uh, I just, I guess I didn't have time to focus on the pain this much. And, uh, yeah, man, it's like looking back, I was like, man, I felt like a hundred bucks, you know, a thousand bucks, but, um, it was, uh, it was a good deployment. Like, uh, is my actually first really good firefight of exchanging fire um, up in the mountains of Afghanistan as a, as a new guy at the, at the command. Uh, it was phenomenal watching those guys work and being able to work with them. Um, we, uh, we had some, some really good missions and uh, being at that level, it was, it was cool to see like everything I envisioned a, a frogman uh, would be. Uh, was, I was living it and it was great. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure it just made it that much more reward, rewardable for you. I mean, given everything that you've been through, you know, yeah, um, and the, all the work that you put in, and the pain and suffering that you put yourself through, and and not to mention, you know, like you said, it, uh, being in that kind of unit, uh, just not even getting hurt, uh, let alone takes a takes a toll on on your family life. Um, but then, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it that was. Uh... Speaking of family life, that was during that process was was during the time that I was going through my my second divorce, uh, being in the Navy. Uh, my first one was after going through Bud and whatnot, because <clears throat> kind of like I said before, and you, you guys probably heard other guys talk about it. 
it was one of those things where that was that was my focus in life. Like if you weren't there to make me a better operator um, for my brothers, if you were there as a distraction, you would literally get pushed aside and be an afterthought. Um, and it's it looking back, you know, it, it definitely sucked uh, being a new the spouse of a guy at that level. Cause, and <clears throat> especially during that time frame, those, those years in Iraq and Afghanistan for all guys, it was, and the divorce rate was 70, 80%. It's one of those things they were telling us in boot camp, don't ever think about getting married. And I was like, ah, well, I'm already married when I joined boot camp. Um, it didn't last until I made it out of buds and for my first deployment, getting divorced. And, and when I was in Virginia beach <clears throat> at the command before my, at the end of my my last appointment was my second divorce, and it was it's hell it's hell on a family life for sure. But, well, it is it is because the op tempo that you have. I mean, you, just even in regular military units. I mean, with this with that with that conflict, the op tempo that you have. You know, it, it, just being in a regular army unit. I mean, you're gone for twelve to fourteen months. You come home. You yeah. know, you do a workup, and I mean, you're you're your first formed family becomes the guys you're working next to. And then, you know, your family at home becomes your secondary family. And that's, that's very difficult to, uh, to put up with as a spouse. Um, but yeah. uh, it's one of those things that spouse, if you didn't know that you're going to be number two or number three, if you weren't mentally prepared for that, the marriage didn't last. And it was, uh, kind of like you said, you're, you're doing everything with your brothers for your brothers. And it's tough being gone. 12 to 18 months. Like, I felt bad for some of the Army guys. Um, yeah, my first at the command, uh, my first year working with them, I was gone 280 days out of the year. Like, I wasn't home. I was either on, on a workup, uh, deployed, uh, special missions, whatever. Um, and then, by the time I left the Navy, I had so much accumulated leave because you, in the military, you, after so many active duty days, you get accumulate, uh, I don't know, like, a lead day or half lead day or something, but God, I had so many days to leave because we just wouldn't take it. It was always like, you need to take leave or, but you're going to miss part of a, a workup or a training mission. And uh, if you miss a training mission, you're, you're going to be considered falling behind. One of our commanders at, at the command, there's a CO there. He said, this, this command is like a burn of Ferris wheel. As soon as you step off, you're already going to be far, that far behind. Um, yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's the thing, and you don't you don't want to be that guy. I mean, because you're, you know, you've you've already invested so much of your of yourself in, into something that you you know you you want to be there. And I know that's very hard for people to understand that it's not that you're putting your family second or putting your significant other second. It's just this is the this is the path you chose to go down, and you know you feel like you're doing it for the right reasons. You're a patriot, and you wanna you want to do the best you can for the country. And and the focus is is. It just felt different at those levels because it was it was truly life or death. It wasn't uh, like when we went out on missions. It was there's a hundred percent chance that you would probably get shot at and or killed. Um, and it was it was one of the things I, I couldn't as a guy at the command uh, and for my brothers I, I couldn't lose that focus. Uh, and it it, it sucks because you know, the home life and the the stateside life kind of suffered for that. Um, and there'd be I said, months and sometimes years where I would talk to my foster parents or talk to like my brother and sister. Um, and of course my spouse at the time, I would, I would come home, uh, be home for like a weekend sometimes and just be like, 
unpacking, repacking, washing clothes. And sometimes I would even I wouldn't even actually go to the house. I'd come to the command, wash some clothes, or, or just kind of grab. We have different bags packed for uh, different either missions or, or mission training training missions, and we we'd go in our cage, throw in our dive gear and grab our salt gear and get back on the bus and, and we'd be gone again. Um, right. And so that, that, that selflessness, I mean, I, I'm, I'm so glad you talked about it because a lot of people can't understand that. And they, for some reason, um, you know, it, it's very hard for people to relate to. And people say, you know, I can't believe that you'd turn your back on your family or this and that, but you have to understand it's not turning your back on anybody. It's you're being selfless and you're trying to do something that's bigger than, than yourself. You know what I mean? I mean, you're, you're a part of something that, that you truly believe in and you're, and you're fighting for the country. And so uh, people don't, people just don't understand that. And, and, uh, you know, I hope, I hope stories like yours get told more often and maybe they can. Um, uh, but you know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing. And, you know, and I know even after that, I mean, your life hasn't, uh, hasn't gotten any really any easier. I mean, you've been through, you've been through a lot because, uh, so at what point did you get remarried to Morgan? Uh, so that happened toward right before I got out of the, the uh, Navy. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot. <clears throat> we got married, uh, 2016. And I retired officially from the Navy 2017. Uh, so we, uh, yeah, but we, we started kind of seeing each other after after my separation and divorce from my last spouse. Um, and she got lucky. She was, uh, she was there for my last couple of deployments, but they were kind of short. And then transitioning out, I spent a lot of time home because I ended up getting hurt again and some more surgeries. But um we uh, talk about that after because it was after my second deployment with the unit I was at that I got hurt again. Uh, so my first deployment, we, we ended up uh, doing uh, some stuff up north in Afghanistan in Taoist area. Uh, that's right before we got there. The, the guys before us uh, actually got in this real bad firefight with some guys uh, on this this fob, and it was one of those fobs that was special missions fob. So we weren't with uh, a big built-up base. It was out in the middle of nowhere, um, and it was really close to some guys in uh, Salerno, where a bunch of ranger guys were, a whole ranger battalion. But uh, we were between us and them was just flat nothingness. Like Afghanistan has some some gnarly mountains, but where we were at, it was just flat. It, it reminded me of being uh, on the moon or in the Sahara Desert. You could see mountains in the distance, but man, you could see for miles and miles. But the, uh, the insurgents there were, were crafty as hell, and, and obviously where we were at, they were blending in with the local populace. So it was easy for them to, to sneak up on on people and, and take pop shots and, and launch mortars and whatnot. Um, but I bounced around from there, did some stuff uh, in Wardak area, uh, and at it was fast and furious. Like we, I probably did more missions uh, in that short amount of time because the deployments were a little shorter than they were at Team Five. Um, but I did more missions on that shorter deployment than I did uh, at Team Five, probably combined, um, just because it's just you. You are that premier unit, and it costs so much money to train and deploy you. Uh, they were going to use you, and yeah, we were 
we were definitely hunting and doing missions daily. Right. And so talk about the second time you got hurt. Walk us through that one. <clears throat> so I got back uh, stateside for my first deployment with the unit uh, 2010 after that. Um, quick turnaround, went and deployed again. Uh, and then we got back from my second deployment with that unit in uh, August 2012. Um, it, was, it was great. I was actually about to take a leadership position. I was super stoked. Um, and we are on a, another skydiving trip. At this point, this is like my, you know, fifth or sixth skydiving trip. The unit I was at, uh, that was that was something they really loved to do, and they would make extra time in the training schedule to go skydiving, uh, which was great. It's just but I was one of those guys, after my first time, I was always super nervous. Um, and I was like, man, you know what, I'm never going to do another, um, let's do one more type of jump uh, ever, because that's going to happen last time. My first injury was, it was Friday, the last jump of the day after the last jump that we thought we were going to have the time before. And I was having such a good time. I was like, yeah, let's get one more in. Let's get one more in. Um, so same thing. Um, it was Friday. Uh, and we were doing some high-altitude jumping. Um, so we were up in uh, an area in Colorado um, doing some high-altitude jumping. So basically it's different when you're jumping at altitude compared to jumping – say, in the desert or uh, sea level. Um, as you get higher, the air gets thinner. And the way that affects your parachute is you basically fly faster in your parachute. Uh, so I jump all week, um, which was a, was a pretty uh, high-tempo uh, skydiving trip because we actually, that trip, uh, earlier that week, a, a buddy of mine actually broke his leg uh, catching it um, with a bad with a bad landing because his parachute kind of collapsed on him. And then our CEO at the time came in, we call it came in hot, so basically his, his, he's screaming across the ground, and when he went to flare, he couldn't, uh, couldn't keep up running, and he ended up sliding in on his butt and broke his tailbone. <clears throat> but I was having a good jump week, and same thing, it was Friday, about lunchtime, and like, let's get one more in. Let's go around and do an accuracy jump. So we're trying to land on this... Uh, it's a piece of cloth that we put shaped like a T, and uh, this piece of cloth was probably uh, as big as a, a, a standard house driveway, you know, about 10, 15, 20 feet long, and six to eight feet wide, um, and we're practicing like actually jumps, because some of the jumps we do would be uh, on small mountaintops or plateaus, so if you would miss your spot, uh, in a real life mission, you go off the side of the mountain or something. So we're practicing no shit, high accuracy jumps. It was the last jump of the day, um, and I'm trying to do some maneuvers uh, to line myself up and land on this piece of cloth, and I wasn't really paying attention to my altitude. Um, so I'm doing this slow flat turn, and I look at my my altimeter. I'm, I'm facing. I'm trying to face final and, and land. I look at my altimeter and I'm below 100 feet, and I'm staring at all these. Uh, they, we call them ISU, so they're. Um, I, I know ISU stands for it's a portable storage unit, pretty much. But it's basically they they were we use those instead of pallets when we packed our gear, and they're just basically little 
Connex boxes, mini Connex boxes. We call them ISU 90s because they're about 90 cubic feet. <clears throat> we had about seven or eight of them lined up on the edge of the drop zone, uh, and we had the ambulance. And so I'm facing this ambulance, and all I could see is myself uh, going through the front windshield of this ambulance. I start kind of getting nervous and panicking, and I start shifting and what they call crabbing. So basically, I'm moving in my harness to relocate myself in the air facing a different direction. And I'm looking towards these, these ISUs. Uh, so after, ever since my uh, my first injury, I always wore a, a GoPro on my helmet um, just in case, A, I got hurt again, I can kind of see what happened, but B, it just became standard practice to, for review and jumps and stuff. So I'm looking at these uh, portable storage uh, units that we had, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go between them. Uh, that way I don't hit them. And so I'm getting closer and closer to the ground. Um, I'm full flare, so I'm sprinting as fast as I can because I'm trying to slow down my parachute um, and slow down my leg movements, but I'm still moving pretty quick. Uh, I've said it, a high-altitude jumps the air spinner, so you're, you're cruising across the ground. So I'm already full flare, and I'm going, going between them, but then I'm looking at this ISU to my left, telling myself in my head, i got to avoid that thing. I don't want to hit it. But in the camera, you can see see my hands dip down that direction, which steers my parachute directly towards that ISU. So at the very last second, I realize I'm about to hit this thing. And I thought about maybe I should just ball up and just hit it kind of as flat as I can. Uh, but I was moving too fast. I was like, there's no way. This is going to hurt way worse. I may end up killing myself. So I ended up throwing my legs up. <clears throat> so I put my legs in front of me to kind of brace for impact. And I hit so hard my left leg uh, bounced off because luckily with all the lovely uh, plates and screws that may be installed in me, uh, my left leg kind of bounced off. But my right leg immediately gave way um, and my foot broke off. You can see in the, the, the footage, my foot is in my shoe, so my shoe kind of touches the side of my foot. And then the bone, my tibia and fibula from my ankle joint, shove out from my leg and hits this ISU and just shatters. Uh, I hit this thing so hard, the ISU pretty much it rocks it. <clears throat> and so I hit there, and I, I, I'm looking straight at my leg when it happened. So I knew exactly what happened, and I was completely conscious the whole time. I didn't, I didn't lose consciousness on this one like I did last time. And the first thought in my head was not that I was hurt, that I was pissed off at myself because I had broken my leg again. And I just like felt everything in a matter of no seconds. And the whole process went through my head, and I was just, and I was, I was so angry and and pissed at myself. And all I could think about is how guys uh, would think that this that this was going to be my legacy in the unit was the guy who would shatter his legs when he went skydiving. <laughs> both um, times. Uh, both times. Well, I, I, well, at that time it was I had at least like three hundred jumps. Like I, I've already been many, many skydiving trips before that, um, and i kind of gotten over everything. So the guys run up to me. Uh, the first guy runs up to me, um, and his eyes were super white because they said that I hit that thing so hard they thought I died because the way my body kind of crumbled and how hard I hit it because I hit it with everything I had. As soon as my legs hit, my my bottom hit, my back hit, my head hit upside down, and I just kind of crumpled in that. As soon as I hit, I just laid there. I didn't move because I, I knew what happened. I was so angry at myself. And 
it, actually the anger kind of overcame the pain and I, I didn't start feeling pain until the guys started running around for me and the first guy rolled up to me his eyes are super white he goes he goes joe are you alive and i'm like i was like yeah but i broke my leg and he looks at my leg and he looks at me and he goes oh it's not that bad and i was like you don't have to lie to you, man. I saw it. It is bad. <laughs> my, foot, <laughs> my foot's just like hanging off there of my leg, and there's just my bones and, and kind of pieces. But um, the corpsman ran up to me, and this guy was a was a rock star corpsman. Uh, he looked at me and he goes, hey, dude, I can't get a pulse in your foot, so I'm going to have to atomically align your foot. Uh, that way I can get a pulse, because if you don't, you're going to lose your foot. I was like, do what you got to do, man. And so, sure enough, grabbed my foot in my shoe, pulled it and adjusted it and let the kind of suck back into the skin and tissue uh, to get it atomically correct and aligned. And, man, that, that, that took my anger and made me swallow the anger because the amount of overwhelming pain uh, <laughs> was, was unbearable because – at this point, it was like one of those things where he was giving me a once-over, and I didn't have – there wasn't any fentanyl lollipops. There's nothing. It was just like, we got to do this because uh, you have no pulse, and it, this could be dangerous. You could lose your foot. And I kept thinking about that scene, uh, you know, looking back of Dances with Wolves, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. my, corpsman, my corpsman tell me, you're not going to lose this foot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so – so I'm laying there in in more pain than I've ever been in probably my life. Uh, and then once he adjusted my foot, put me in a splint, they called the ambulance. Um, the ambulance had some, some issues sticking me because I have really thick skin. And so they were trying to give me morphine on the spot while loading me up. And the uh, EMT check there was just like, she kept over penetrating, blowing out my veins pretty much. And uh, my corpsman goes, you know what? Here you go. I got two fentanyl water pops. I went to uh, the closest uh, hospital. Um, saw a doctor who uh, put on an external fixator, uh, and they loaded me up in a plane, and I flew back to Portsmouth. Um, and I landed at Portsmouth, and I got it's funny. I got the same exact room I had a couple of years prior, and the same exact nurses that were in there, and. Um, they looked at me kind of funny because I came in with a broken leg. <laughs> um, uh, within a couple hours, the uh, the same doc that fixed my left uh, left leg walks in to me and he goes, "I'm not going to stop meeting like this uh, because you're out of legs now. I can't break anymore." <laughs> uh, but God, that was uh, that sucked again because. Same thing. He's like, man, I, I know I told you that the first time, but this one's this this one this injury is way worse. Same thing. We're gonna fix it, um, but especially with both of them now, you're uh, you're not looking uh, too good as far as returning to active duty. Uh, so, no, again, six to eight weeks I spent. Um, they would have a surgery, install a plate and some screws, wait till my leg swelling to go down, um, and they did that once again. I had uh, three plates and another 18, 20 screws in my right leg. And, uh, man, it was, it was more instant, 
instant drive than it was the last time. Like I didn't, I didn't wasn't depressed at all. It was one of those things where I was like, you know what, I, I'm not gonna let this slow me down. The last one didn't, so this one won't either. Um, so same thing. <clears throat> I uh, went to rehab every day, and that was my mission for uh, the next eight to nine months. Um, and, and the same thing, I was was trying to make the next next deployment. Um, unfortunately, at this time, I wasn't able to get cleared in time to actually deploy overseas. And so I actually had to do an L&O job for that deployment, which I was pretty bummed about. But it did give me some extra time to heal up. Um, and that was uh, that was frustrating to, to see the guys uh, deploy. I had to pull without me, but uh, I... They uh, they went overseas and I went to D.C. and and basically sat around and and discussed uh, stuff from the command with uh, Secretary of Defense and stuff like that. That was a, a great experience, but at the same time, it was disheartening because I was built to built to you know deploy, built to be with my brothers, built to be with those guys. Right. Yeah, it had to be had to be a pretty shitty time for you. I mean, even though you know you were still doing an important job, but you were doing what your where your heart was. Yeah. So, at, did you return back and, and ever deploy again, or or did you start the process of of uh, retiring? Uh, nope, I actually, I actually did. I, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm getting through this, and I'm get back to my unit, and I'm gonna deploy again. Um, so at that time, uh, definitely did the workup, got cleared again. Uh, I actually started wearing this uh, device called an Ideo brace. Uh, so down at the uh, AMC down there in San Antonio, Center for the Intrepid, they had uh, this awesome dock that had this brace that basically would have these two rods that ran behind your leg um, and attached to a foot plate because my ankle was still kind of giving me issues. Uh, so basically this brace acted like an external prosthetic that would flex with these bars when you pushed your knee on it. So to push off, I wouldn't have to use my ankle because I was... Definitely had limited range of motion after that, lots of scar tissue, especially since my ankle joint decided to leave some uh, actual cartilage behind on that ISU. Um, I didn't have the range of motion. I used to tell guys, I guess my, my life as a dancer is over. And I might as well look for a different line of work. <laughs> but uh, luckily, I'm not a dancer. Uh, I'm a team guy, so I, I'm going to be able to make it through this. So, no, I, I actually deployed to Afghanistan one more time. Um, and then I deployed to uh, Yemen. Uh, and then <laughs> that was a, a crazy deployment because that was uh, about the time the uh, embassy got taken over and they had to shut down the country. That uh, was uh, 2015. Um, and then that, that whole deployment, and something just didn't feel right. Like it was, I was in a, a lot of uncomfortable pain for no reason. Um, and I just kept attributing to me being a pussy, so I would push through it. You know, I had a, a rock star and a, a corpsman that was attached to us from Team 5, my previous command, was augmenting us. <clears throat> and, man, I would have he would be rubbing my ankle and just doing movement and physical therapy nightly. Like, I would harass that guy. He probably we had a love-hate relationship going because it hurt like hell when he moved it, but it was the only thing that would keep me functioning. Because if not, I'd stiffen up and... I would almost be useless. <clears throat> but I got back and I was like, man, it, my foot's really, my, my legs bothered me. Um, so I was talking to, you know, some other doctors and, and 
the rehab guys and like, hey, they got this new procedure where they can go in and basically uh, clean out your joint because it's basically my joint space. Uh, all the bones and stuff were just kind of locked down with those plates and screws. Um, right. So they're like, hey, we can do this surgery and it should make you feel better. So basically they go into your joint space uh, and kind of, instead of, because uh, I didn't have any cartilage left on my ankles, uh, they basically create like the scar tissue that acts like cartilage. I was like, all right, cool. And he's like, this procedure is probably like an hour if that. The recovery time's, you know, less than six weeks. Like, you'll be on crutches until you can kind of start putting weight on it again. Um, so I was like, all right, cool. You know, this is great. You know, I can, I can do about, you know, four to six weeks. Uh, it's kind of in just that. It's not like eight eight to nine months. So they take me into the, the hospital. I go under. Uh, and I'm coming up in the recovery room. I'm standing there, and uh, I look at the clock, and I'd been in surgery for like six to eight hours, and I had and I had a brand new scar. This this was supposed to be a, a small invasive surgery, so basically like a, a micro deal, and they go in with little instruments and basically just they basically micro like scrape the inside of your cartilage, create scar tissue. But I had a, a no shit eight to nine inch open incision. Uh, the doc comes in and goes, <laughs> he goes. You're not going to believe this, but some of your hardware had worked inside your ankle joint, and you were running around with screws uh, loose in your ankle joint for the past six months. And I was like, oh, really? Anything, if you don't know anything about the human anatomy, joint spaces are, are very, very uh, closed off, and the fluid inside of them is very smooth. Just the smallest bit of any type of debris in joint spaces is excruciating because it's not designed for anything being there besides that, that fluid. There was a, a solid metal screw that one of my 18 screws on that leg had worked its way off the plate and was floating around in my ankle joint. Every time I ran, I had this sharp screw just digging into my ankle joint. And I was like, oh, well, that sucks. And he goes, yeah, so your recovery time is going to be about three months instead of you know, six weeks. Motherfucker. <clears throat> But, uh, no, I recovered from that, um, and stuff started kind of shifting again. And I, I went and saw some of the other Navy docs and all the other docs, and, and they told me, like, hey, this is what's going to happen. Like, you can, we can't tell you that you're not going to be able to operate again because you've proved us wrong multiple times already. But if you continue on this path, it's, it's going to continue shifting your hardware because the amount of stress you put on, uh, your legs when you're moving around that on deployments and you're, I'm running around with, I'm a breacher. So instead of the standard, you know, 50, 60 pounds of body armor and ammo, I had breaching charges, sledges, hoolies, like my, my helo weight. So when you go on a helicopter, you get weighed because they only so much payload. So my helicopter weight is close to 325, 330. Right. Um, because, because of the amount of weight that I carried, including my, my body size, um, and just run around the mountains with that in Afghanistan and, and doing stuff like that in Yemen, uh, it was causing all my hardware to shift because it's a whole lot of stress you put on the body. Um, and so they're like, hey, if, if you continue down this path, every deployment you're going to have some type of surgery to readjust hardware and whatnot, and you probably won't be walking when you're 40. <clears throat> At this time, I'd already been in the Navy about 13, 14 years, uh, and it was, it was tough because they told me that I would basically be at a, a desk job for the rest of my career, which, you know, to get to 20s and 06, and I wouldn't be able to advance because my, uh, my rate to have a deployable 
uh, leadership position. And the Navy at that time, after that last surgery and my last deployment, um, the command and the Navy were, were going to make me non-deployable, uh, which was um, you know, was out of my control at that point. I was yeah, that's like a, it's it, like a kick it, in the nuts, though. I mean, because was, you're not uh, you're not ready. And it, it uh, just, well, so we're supposed to be ready. I I, uh, I had no plans to even think about what I was going to do after the military. And the med board process was uh, wasn't super long, but it was long enough that uh, I was. It was quick enough that when I when I started getting out and out processing, I was I had no idea what I was going to do. It was one of those things that was mentally defeated uh, hearing that and going through that med board process because and I, I didn't I didn't know what I wanted to do or what I what I could do. Like I, I had my dream job. I was living living any uh, boy's fantasy. I mean, top of my career, um, as high as I could go as a Navy SEAL, uh, and be and just the, the guys I was with. Like, and it, 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 I probably could have been a janitor, but I think mostly it's just the, the guys I was with. Um, I didn't want to be anywhere else. I didn't want to be surrounded by anybody else in the world because. Uh, everybody had the same mentality. Everybody had that drive, and there was nobody that would. Everyone's crying because it's Wednesday or Thursday, and they wish the weekend was their kind of deal. Like everybody had the same mentality. Like the weekend gives us, uh, you know, forty-eight hours more to train. So let's let's meet here. Let's do this. Let's do that. And that was that was what drove us. You know, and all that was coming to an end. I was like, man, I'm never going to see these guys again. It was uh, that was the biggest. Biggest kick in the nuts was the fact I wouldn't see those guys. It wasn't the fact that I wasn't at all to be able to do my job. Uh, the biggest thing was not being able to be with those guys and, and be on the point with those guys. Yeah, I mean it's 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 disheartening as hell. I mean, you know, the guys that you that rely on you to for everything, and you rely on them. I mean, it's it's they're, they're brothers. I mean, it's just a that's the hardest that's the hardest thing for a, a military guy to do. Uh, which leads the military because it's just not that uh, you don't get that on the civilian side of things. It just doesn't happen. But, uh, yeah, definitely just, been, just the experiences alone. Like there's there's nothing I could do with anybody in the world uh, that would be present what's close to the experience that I have with those guys. And, uh, yeah, and I I mean I know you know even after you got out it's still you know. I know we kind of touched on on uh, you getting remarried and everything a little bit. I know we're kind of running out of time, but uh, you know you you've been through some you've been through hell, really. I mean, even since you gotten out, I mean your your family and and everything. I got out in 2017 was my official retirement date. Um, I got medically retired 100, um, percent and then uh, two years later. Uh, at the beginning of January 2019, uh, my wife had some issues uh, with her with her stomach. She kept saying, I can't eat, can't go to the bathroom, something's going on. And she was just always kind of uncomfortable and in pain. Uh, went to a couple docs, and, and they were explaining, like, oh, you're, you're probably just constipated. It's your diet. And um, she, she was um, healthy, and, and, and she's healthy and fit, so it's kind of one of those things like, oh, she she eats well. She doesn't just eat junk food all the time. She has a good variety. So, um, man, they would they would pile her with all kinds of laxative stuff, thinking that uh, she's just something stuck in there. Um, and I was like, 
my first thought as a guy, I was like, I was like, maybe there's something going on with her colon or prostate. And I was like, but chicks don't have prostates, they're, they're chicks. Uh, but I was like, hey, maybe we should try a colonoscopy to get something checked out because something's not right. Uh, so we ended up finding out that she had uh, stage three colorectal cancer. She had a tumor about uh, seven inches uh, in diameter uh, blocking uh, everything in her colon. That was tough to hear uh, because we have we have three little boys and it kind of kind of brought me back to my childhood, remembering my mom. Right, my sons are about the same age I was. Uh, my me, my brother, my sister were. Um, and I remember all the stuff that my mom went through and seeing her going through all that stuff uh, was tough. Uh, I remember uh, in the military, they always, you know, you always had the most likely course of action, most dangerous course of action, um, least dangerous course of action kind of deal. So that, that was my process. Like I worked through what the worst thing that could happen is she could not survive and I would be stuck in the same situation my father was in when I grew up, um, and, and that, that hit me hard. Like it was definitely something it was tough to chew on because I, I couldn't imagine my boys going through what I did and growing up without a mom. But, uh, 2019, 2020, and she was going through all her chemo and radiation treatments. Um, it was tough watching her go through that because it, it, it wrecks, wrecks havoc on the body. She went through surgeries to kind of get the tumor removed um, and had to go through some stuff where they kind of had her uh, rerouted her intestines that they healed and she had to wear a colostomy bag for a little bit. And it was hell on her mentally and, and physically. And, and it, I was, we, we were lucky that she, she got through with it, but the whole strong mental fortitude was, uh, I'm glad that she had that too. A lot of people, um, some people would, would kind of get up in that situation, but she definitely was still is just one of those people that brighter type things, always the best side of things. Hey, we're going to fight through this kind of deal. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, she, she's a beast. I mean, I, she's got a great, she's had a great attitude and, and, uh, you know, she powered through it and, uh, everything's good now. Good, good bill of health, right? Yeah. Um, after the surgery, you know, they, they removed that whole section of her colon and, and, and whatnot, uh, put it back together and, now she's uh, pushing on. I mean, she definitely had to change up her diet a little bit. Uh, believe it or not, there's a reason why you have all the feet of intestines you have in your body to process all that food. Um, and if if you don't, then it definitely your body has to relearn how to digest and, and do things properly. But um, besides whatever she, she kind of goes through, um, she feels great. Uh, we haven't had any, had any issues so far. Every checkup's been pretty good. So, uh, no, it's pretty good, but obviously we're going to keep on checking every six months to a year, you know, make sure nothing comes back. But no, it's definitely fortunate. Um, I'm glad that we, uh, we made it through that. That was definitely stressful, but not for her, because definitely for her, because she was not sure how that was going to pan out. But for me as well, like I said, I was, man, all I could think about was my childhood. I, I relived my whole childhood that year, seeing and sympathize with my dad so much about what he went through with my mom uh, before she passed. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think cancer, cancer is something that so many people can relate with. I, I know that, you know, my mother died of cancer when I was young as well. And um, 
you know, it's, it's a tough thing to, to watch somebody go through and, and for them to overcome it and, and just to see the attitude. Cause my mother, she didn't have uh, like a super strong attitude about it. She was almost just defeated as soon as she got the, got the word. And that was, it was so tough to see. Um, but you know, it's awesome to see people nowadays that, um, you know, they hit it head on and, and they fight it and, and, uh, you know, a lot of times over are overcoming it now, but it's a, it's very, it's very tough to, to witness someone close that you love going through that. Yeah. Man, I tell you what, Joe, I don't know that uh, we did much of a, much of justice of uh, telling your story. I hope uh, that everybody, you know, everybody listens to this over and over again. You have an amazing story and I know there's so much more to tell. I mean, unfortunately we're kind of running out of time for tonight. I wish we could go on forever. Um, but man, I, I can't appreci- appreciate you so much for, uh, for getting on here and talking about the things you talked about. And I just got like one question for you. If you had, any, if you had it to do all over again, what would you change? Uh, man, where I'm sitting at today, I, I'd be afraid to change anything just because I wouldn't want to alter the course that I have right now. I mean, I got a great wife. I got that four beautiful sons, you know, uh, my three with my current wife and my oldest with my ex. Um, and they're they're both wonderful. My ex is is a, is a great gal, and uh, my oldest he's about turned fifteen, got his first girlfriend, and uh, he's crushing it. Um, like being a father and being where I'm at today, uh, if if I had to change something, like I think about it, it's like man, if I would have not did those two jumps, um, my injury and my recovery process is kind of what brought me to my current life, and um, I there's there's no telling where I'll be at today and my life would be completely different. So I guess uh, the biggest thing would be not to be such a pussy right at the beginning after I got hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what's in the future for you, man? Uh, well, right now uh, I, I work with a, a pretty good company and do uh, training and, and some contracts with the military. Um, I'm getting certified to be a dive instructor or a nonprofit, uh, warfighter scuba, uh, Man, I, I hope to one day just do that 100% of the time because being in the water is like the least painful thing I can do. Like I, I don't go, unfortunately, I can't go on runs anymore. So I do a lot of bicycling and uh, my workouts consist of me not uh, stiffening up because here I am, you know, 40 and uh, I'm still walking. So those doctors were wrong again. But uh, I hope to continue uh, being mobile uh, well into my 70s, you know. So trying to do yeah, a little less least stressful life and spend as much time with my my boys as i can yeah and we'll go on hikes when we're 70 together there you go hell yeah <laughs> anyways man i really appreciate you coming on and telling your story and uh and man you know it's so inspiring and, and again i know there's so much more to it and we really didn't do it justice but i i hope i hope we got the message across to a lot of the listeners of you know what you can accomplish if you believe in something you believe in yourself and and you can learn how to tap into that that human mind and body connection and uh you know everybody i, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening this story means so much to me joe's such a great friend of mine and he's a great guy he's got a great family and um you know i, I hope this kind of paints a picture of of our war fighters and what they go through and how much they're willing to give and uh how we really need to appreciate them every day because if it weren't for men like joe then uh, i mean where would our country be but again thanks Uh, for tuning in tonight and uh, we'll talk to everybody next week on another episode and we really appreciate you tuning in and let's just keep a a prayer in our heads for the people of ukraine they're they're standing up and they're fighting a big fight 
uh, you know, all odds are against him and they're, they're doing it. So thanks for listening, in. Joe. Again, thanks brother for coming on and, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for, uh, let me tie up a whole month for the episodes with you guys. It was awesome. Yeah, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. Everybody have a good night. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggins. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. CBN, Veterans Broadcast Network, brings you Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible.